From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome to the China and the World podcast. I'm glad to welcome back Jake Sullivan. Jake was uh, on the podcast back in 2017, uh, and we're delighted to have him back. Jake is a senior fellow in Carnegie's Geoeconomic and Strategy Program, is also the Martin R. Flug Visiting Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School. Jake served in the Obama administration, uh, first at the Department of State, where he was the Deputy Chief of Staff and the Head of Policy Planning for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, ended his time in the administration serving as the National Security Advisor to Vice President, then Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Jake was uh, also the Senior Foreign Policy Advisor on Secretary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and served as the Deputy Policy Director on Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential run. Jake has been involved in many of the most important and key foreign policy initiatives in the Obama administration, including working with the current president of the Carnegie Endowment, Bill Burns, when he was Deputy Secretary of State, where the two were involved in the secret negotiations with Iran that eventually led to the Iran nuclear agreement. Jake, welcome back to the podcast. Really happy to be back. Jake, I want to start out by talking. Uh, you live in Washington, D.C., and uh, many of our listeners uh, are from all around the world and are trying to understand uh, what is going on with U.S. policy and sort of, you know, U.S. sentiments on China in Washington, D.C. Richard Haas, the president of Council of Foreign Relations, recently said he's hard-pressed to think of another consensus in American foreign policy that has moved as far and as fast as the U.S. consensus on China. What has happened to this U.S. consensus on China? Why have we seen this dramatic shift under the Trump administration? It really is incredible to see the pendulum swing from uh, an emphasis on cooperation and engagement to an emphasis on competition. And it's not just the Trump administration, although the rhetoric and the policies that this president and his team have pursued have certainly amplified and reinforced it. It's a bipartisan shift. Mm -hmm. It's a shift among politicians and a shift among policymakers, among the national security establishment mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle. And I think uh, some of the explanation lies in Washington and some of the explanation lies in Beijing. In Washington, uh, it's almost as if the town woke up one day and thought, my goodness, China has risen very far, very fast. And uh, this induced some amount of anxiety on the part mm. of U.S. policymakers. Mm. Um, also, there is a view that the convergence that Americans expected around the economic and political models of the two countries, that China's economic liberalization would be accompanied somehow by political liberalization, didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And this has led to some disappointment in Washington. And then there's a view that China has taken advantage of uh, the rules of the international system, whether it's cyber theft or the way in which the state plays in its market, to get an unfair advantage in mm -hmm. global trade and finance. That's on the U.S. side. 
that's where I would say most Chinese interlocutors would like the story to stop. This yeah. is all just about the anxiety of a great power. But as you and I have discussed uh, in other contexts, this has been mirrored by a much more aggressive and assertive Chinese leadership yeah. uh, under Xi Jinping. Activities in everything from the South China Sea to pronouncements about China being an alternative model for the world um, that has created a little bit of a vicious cycle. Uh, yeah. in Washington. Um, and so I think both the United States and China have pursued policies over the course of the past few years that have very much contributed to this pendulum shift. Um, and uh, and I think the politics of the 2020 campaign will only serve to uh, deepen mm -hmm. the degree to which mm -hmm. the American debate is one of increasing competition with China. I, I think your point about... Um, you know, much of the shift has been, uh, you know, what has led to that is developments here in China. That's often left out of the discussion, unfortunately, um, because Trump is the figure that he is and dominates a lot of this. He takes, sucks the, the oxygen out of the discussion on U.S.-China. But as you point out, there have been developments here in China on the political side, on the economic side, and on the international side. And, you know, my Chinese friends, Chinese scholars, Chinese experts are concerned in many ways about the direction of Chinese politics, the abolition of term limits, the abolishment of term limits, the you know, moving away from the norms that Deng's, Deng Xiaoping set in terms of leadership succession. On the economic side, what happened to the reforms that were announced in 2013, why this heavy shift to, to the status type of uh, economy. And then on the international side, you know, what we hear is it's okay to move away from keeping a low profile, this Tao Guanyang Hui, but does China need to do it at the pace and the scope and with the rhetoric uh, that it has done? So, you know, I think your point about there's two sides to the equation is a very, very important one. Can you describe what you described is Washington policy and sentiment, but what do you see when you go beyond the beltway on China? I really do believe this is largely a policy that is motivated by and driven by an inside the beltway conversation. Mm -hmm. I think out beyond the beltway in the rest of the country, there is not a already constructed reservoir of ill will or antipathy towards China. Mm. Um, there is certainly um, pockets in the United States, particularly in the industrial Midwest, that experienced a shock when China entered the World Trade Organization, caused a significant decline in manufacturing and the loss of millions of jobs. Uh, and so there is resentment about U.S. trade policy in respect to China. So hitting China on the campaign trail in that context has been effective through multiple mm. campaign cycles and will again. But this broader notion that somehow China has become a strategic rival mm. or that we need to enter a kind of new Cold War with them. There's not a lot of purchase for that mm -hmm. in the heartland or mm -hmm. in the American Southwest or you know, the Pacific Northwest or other parts of the United States. Indeed, multiple opinion surveys have reinforced the fact that while there is rising concern about China, the bottom line is there's a broad view that China shouldn't be our enemy, that yeah. we can work with this country, that we can trade with this country, that we can seek investment from this country. And in yeah. fact, um, I've spent time with mayors of cities in the United States, large and small, from many different parts of the country, 
who have made multiple trips to China to try to attract Chinese investment yeah. to the United States, that investment is not seen somehow as a foreign yeah. invasion. So there is yeah. not a popular upswell mm. pushing Washington policy forward. It's really the other way around. Now, that doesn't mean that if this consensus hardens and deepens in Washington, it cannot have an impact on public opinion. Of course it yeah. can. And five years from now, we could be talking about mm. a broader American electorate that does view China as a rival or a foe or an yeah. enemy. Yeah. Uh, and so I think one thing our leaders need to think carefully about is the degree to which they're stoking that kind yeah. of sentiment. In the yeah. States. I mean, you mentioned mayors, um, certainly governors. There have been a number of governors who have worked hard to find a way to work with China in a way that benefits their state. And I would argue, in fact, our current ambassador here in Beijing is one of those, right. Governor Branstad, right. um, the state of Iowa, um, you know, often talks about, you know, what kind of work he did with China and the trade missions that he's led. Um, and, you know, I think his his feeling is that, you know, the state of Iowa and his citizens had benefited. And you see that in a number of cases. But I, I agree with your point that if if, you know, the sentiment in Washington continues along this, this direction, it could have an impact on how the rest of the country sees it. And you have actually said something about in the current political set of political dynamics. When it comes to China, there's something in it for every candidate. There is, you know, there's something for every candidate to sort of take a shot at China. What do you mean when you when you say that? Well, just starting on the Democratic side, um, if you look at the foreign policy pronouncements of the uh, progressive, the left candidates in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, China fits into their story about um, a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability, oligarchy, uh, the use of corruption as a foreign policy tool, the pressure on open, responsive democratic systems um, as a way of extending their domestic argument about the shape of the American economy mm. globally. And so China and Russia for them become a natural boogeyman. Um, indeed, Bernie Sanders has described China and Russia as an axis of authoritarianism, which mm. is very George W. George Bush, Bush language. Sure. Um, then there are those candidates who would like to talk mostly about major public investments in the United States, in infrastructure, in science and technology, in education. And they can point to China and say, we've got to compete with this country, this big, powerful, important country. And to compete with them, we've got to make major investments in ourselves. So it works for mm. that. Not, Not about keeping China down, but about U.S. running faster. About the United States running faster. And it's justifying American domestic policy on the basis of this competitor out there. Right. Right. Uh, then there is the desire on the part of every American candidate to have a doctrine a kind mm -hmm. of idea, an organizing principle for their foreign policy. And as Tom Wright, uh, an American uh, foreign policy commentator, recent, re recently wrote in The Atlantic, Democrats could use China for this purpose. It's a kind of all-encompassing argument about what our foreign policy can look like mm -hmm. that isn't just a grab bag of different positions mm -hmm. and proposals. And on the Republican side, China is a good foil uh, from the perspective of good old-fashioned chess-beating American patriotism. It's a good foil uh, for uh, foreign policy hawks who believe in American primacy. Um, and so for a Donald Trump uh, or a more traditional Republican like a Marco Rubio, China kind of works as 
a competitor. Mm. Um, and so pretty much regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, having China be seen as this competitor or foil serves some, some political purpose. Yeah. Uh, and that's dangerous. When that yeah. happens, right. that's how a consensus forms. Yeah. And that consensus in turn can lead to self-fulfilling prophecies that could be quite dangerous for American policy. So on the consensus that you know we've had on China, I mean, I've, I served in the Bush administration as China director and came over into the Obama administration, Obama administration as China director. Uh, and I, one of the reasons why I say that was possible is I saw a lot of consistency right. between approaches on, on China. Uh, what you hear now is there is consensus that the approach we use with China in the past is a thing of the past. It's no longer viable. But there doesn't seem to be a consensus on what policy approach we should use with China going forward. There's two common frameworks you hear now in the debate to describe the U.S.-China relationship. One is that we're moving toward a Cold War with China. The other is that we're seeing dynamics around this Thucydides trap by Professor Graham Allison out of Harvard. Are either of those, in your view, applicable? And what framework, how would you think about it as we move towards finding a new consensus on approaching China? You know, it's interesting. The uh, national defense strategy and the national security strategy both use this phrase, strategic competition, to describe our approach to China. I have found that in Washington, if you don't really have a good idea of what your policy is, you just put the word strategic before it. (laughs) Right. So strategic competition kind of means, okay, yeah, it sounds well thought through. But as you say, it doesn't really have a lot of um, clear substance behind it. I don't believe we're in a new Cold War, and I don't think the Thucydides trap accurately describes the relationship. And here's why. On the new Cold War, the foundation for the American strategy of containment, uh, as promulgated by George Kennan, who held my job as director of policy planning after the end of the Second World War, the, the, the premise behind containment was that the Soviet Union would one day collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. And containment was supposed to be the strategy to get us from here to there. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that the United States should build a policy in anticipation of the collapse of China or the Chinese government, nor do I think we should root for that. That's not a good thing. That's not America's interest. Therefore, applying that kind of a Cold War framework to American strategy, Mm. I think, would be uh, misbegotten. I'd go further and say um, that the U.S. and Soviet Union divided the world into competing economic camps entirely. The interdependence that we see now uh, further undermines the case for the idea that a Cold War-style framework can be applied here. On the Thucydides trap, what I find challenging about that is... The Thucydides trap holds that when an established power and a rising power meet, uh, war is a likely result. And Graham Allison finds that in 12 of 16 cases in history, war Mm. was the result. The challenge I see is that the United States and China are both in some ways status quo powers and both in some ways revisionist powers. Mm. So, So the Thucydides trap, in my view, doesn't apply. America is always trying to change the system, just as we mm-hmm. domestically have this kind of work towards a more perfect union. And China wants to change certain aspects of the distribution of power, but also wants to keep some things just the way they are. And in mm-hmm. fact, the current trade dispute between the U.S. and China mm-hmm. 
in a way, the U.S. is acting more as the revisionist than China is. China's mm. saying, hey, this is how things have been done for the last yeah. 20 years. And the U.S. is saying, well, things are going to have to change now. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I don't think you can accurately apply that strict framework just given the nature uh, and the interests of these two countries. And the last point I'd make on the Thucydides trap is war is never unthinkable. That's why we prepare for it and plan for it. But it is verging on unthinkable, in my view, at the leveler of the type that Allison describes as a possibility, um, because it is so profoundly not in the interests of the yeah. two countries. Right. And the field of competition, in my view, is going to be technology and economics and influence to a much greater degree than it is some sort of classic historical mm -hmm. kind of notion of great power war. Mm -hmm. um, that creates its own set of hugely difficult strategic questions. But thinking about the Thucydides trap in the 21st century context of the U.S.-China relationship, yeah. I don't think really applies. The, the other downside that, I, that I, I've seen here in Beijing, and you and I have talked about this, um, the way the Chinese view the Thucydides trap is they say, you know, it's great work by Professor Graham Allison. Right. And it proves that what's behind the increased tension between the U.S. and China is that the U.S. as the established power is simply worried about China becoming more powerful mm. and more influential. Uh, and it's a psychological thing for Americans. Um, it, uh, it's nothing about, you know, how China is changing uh, as it grows in power of influence or Chinese actions that Americans may see or other countries in the world see as undermining their interests. It's all about Americans and how and, and their own set of issues around China becoming more powerful. And I think that lets China off the hook right. quite a bit because what we see here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, when we partner with our global centers around the world, whether that's Europe or the Middle East, Russia, India, is that the world is, is, is responding to a changing China. It's not just the United States. And uh, so this Thucydides trap concept, um, unfortunately, I think it lets China a little bit off the hook. Jake, I want to ask you, I know you're, you're very involved in democratic politics. You worked for Vice Pre Joe Biden when he was vice president. Um, I assume you'll be very involved in the campaign over the next year and a half. Uh, one of the questions that Chinese experts ask often here in China uh, and many Americans ask as well, is when it comes to Trump and the Trump administration's approach to China, what is unique to Trump and the Trump administration and what may be with us uh, for a long time to come? So in other words, if a Democrat won in 2020, how do you, what things, uh, elements of our approach to China do you think would, would remain and, and what might be different? So the first thing that's unique is uh, Donald Trump's view that he should deal with the China challenge in an entirely bilateral way, just mm -hmm. the U.S. versus China. And it goes back to the observation you just made, which is actually there are a range of countries in different regions of the world who have concerns about various aspects of China's policies. Yeah. And part of the United States' response, if a Democrat were elected, would be to try to rally those countries in a united front, not to try to constrain or put China in a box, but rather to present a Absolutely. set of common grievances common concerns. And, and say, let's work these out in a multilateral context rather than a bilateral context. Absolutely. Where from 
that that perspective from the democratic perspective the u.s would actually have the leverage of a much wider set of actors to bring to the table but it, but instead and not not only not working with other countries he's right. decided to pick decided, a fight with exactly. every other country donald trump has has essentially concluded that it is um completely sound strategy for the united states to fight a multi-front economic war at once yeah. to be fighting simultaneously with the europeans and the mexicans um, to go back and forth between tariffs on countries like the Japanese, um, all the while uh, pursuing this. Yeah, plays uh, right into China's China. hands. And, and, and they can right, go over exactly. and say, look, we're all being treated exactly. terribly by the Trump exactly. administration. So that would be a significant shift. A second shift uh, between the way that President Trump approaches this and a Democrat would is his overriding emphasis on the trade deficit, mm-hmm. trying to get purchases of American products up as the ultimate signal of success in the relationship, I think Democrats would put much more emphasis on broader structural issues, which fits into this more multilateral rules-based context, setting rules that the United States and other countries would ask China to then sign up to and and join and so forth. And then the third difference is uh, President Trump has very much personalized this relationship to Xi Jinping. Right and made it about his buddy Xi and the two of them as strong men working things out. And I think a Democrat would view the relationship in a more systemic way, that, yeah. that there's a, a lot of factors that go into it, among them a difference in value sets and value systems. And I think you'd hear more from a Democrat about different perspectives on those kinds of questions. Where I think there will be continuity is uh, on concerns around um, the state of play in the technology relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, how this exactly plays out is still somewhat up in the air because there is a set of concerns in Washington that have not been well translated into policy. But the idea that there are going to have to be some areas in which um, national security concerns dictate different policies and where a different view of issues like privacy use of data, um, the role of technology in surveillance um, will mean that the U.S. and China are going to have to work things out. That conversation, which has started under the Trump administration, will certainly continue under a Democratic president. And this gets at the question of values then, too, and around issues of China promoting alternative forms of global governance, uh, exporting authoritarianism. And I would imagine that a Democratic president would try to address that more head-on than we've seen from President Trump, certainly. Yeah, he doesn't seem to really think about that aspect at all. For him, this is just a point-to-point Washington-to-Beijing thing and what Beijing is doing with respect to the perfection of authoritarian technocracy and then its export is not something I think that's on his radar screen. Democrats already on the campaign trail are talking much more about this, all of the candidates. Mm. Um, But I think what you would expect to see from them is less a direct confrontation with China over this in a given third country and more an effort to make the case for the values that the United States has long embraced of openness, transparency, accountability, uh, individual rights and freedoms and the like. I think that argument is going to get reconstituted and reinforced if a Democrat is elected. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Uh, the conversation between Washington and Beijing 
that in that conversation, this issue will be raised in terms of its relevance and significance as a priority with Chinese leadership to say, this is a concern of ours. Um, you know, this doesn't comport with what our values are. Um, and so I think that would be a big difference between what we see today and what you would see in a democratic administration. Before we finish, I um, will have to ask you about the ongoing trade negotiations. We've seemed to have hit an impasse uh, on the uh, Chinese side. I guess there was somewhat of a feeling that it was too much in the uh, 150 pages of what China had to do. Uh, there was a feeling in China that it imposed on, on China's sovereignty to demand that certain things be passed into law. And there's questions about whether the Trump administration will eliminate the tariffs. On the U.S. side, there seems to be, uh, you know, the, the concern that China is doing what it had feared China would do, which is backtrack on the commitments that it made. And, of course, there's concerns that it will follow through in sort of the implementation. How important, in your view, is this trade deal uh, to find a positive outcome? And uh, where do you think President Trump is on this? Is he... Uh, do you think that he'll want to conclude this in terms, you know, before moving into the presidential campaign? Or do you think that he sees it as good politics to have this trade negotiation still going on uh, as he approaches the campaign? Well, first, I do think it's important to put a floor of stability under this relationship yeah. in this moment. I think a deal would be good for both countries, and it will not resolve all of the issues between us by right. any stretch, but it will allow for a foundation upon which to build. Yeah. I also believe that Donald Trump um, will ultimately reach the political conclusion, and this is doing the dangerous thing of getting inside his head. <laughs> right. Um, so with that proviso, I think he will reach the political conclusion that a deal is better than no deal mm. and that he will be willing to accept a deal that maybe his team, led by Bob Lighthizer, is not entirely comfortable with, that he wants to be able to try to sell um, progress. I put on these tariffs and look what the Chinese gave me, this historic achievement. Mm -hmm. um, we just saw with Mexico his willingness to package something that was modest at best into you know, right. a great victory um, and try to sell it to the American people. I think he will do the same thing with China. And the real question is when. Mm -hmm. He may want to play this out for a while um, to continue to reinforce the idea that he's gotten very tough with China. But I would be surprised if we got deep into 2020 and Donald Trump was um, still uh, still had the tariffs on and hadn't done the deal and opened himself up to the argument that for all the pain he's inflicted and all of the sturm and drang, he couldn't deliver. So that's my prediction. So you but think we he's can, we can more exposed this. politically with not without having done a deal than he uh, than he is having done a deal? I think that will be his conclusion that mm -hmm. that he will be less comfortable defending his inability to close the deal than he will be defending whatever shortcomings or gaps are in the deal. Um, and uh, that's, I think this is all about politics in 2020 now for him. And if I'm right about that conclusion, inexorably, that would lead you um, to predict a deal. Uh, now, it could be months from now. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, the view in Washington that he just wants to go into 2020 continuing to bang the Chinese on the head, you know, punch him in the face. 
I'm skeptical of that because I don't think he's going to want to hear every day from a Democratic nominee that he just couldn't get the job done. Well, to support your argument, uh, it seems from the very beginning he's been most interested in getting China to buy more American product. Right. And uh, apparently part of the deal is $1.2 trillion worth of purchases over six years. And so I think he's been convinced over time by Lighthizer and others that the structural issues, uh, that making progress on those structural issues is important too. But he seems to be much more concerned yeah. about the product yeah. and yeah. Uh, probably wants to roll that out. I, I, I mean, I he's guess, not, in the context of a presidential campaign. Seeing it sit there, sit yeah. out there, this yeah. bright, shiny object that he could grab at any point and say, look what I got. It will be hard for him to resist the temptation all the way to November of 2020 Absolutely. to do that. Absolutely. Well, Jake, thank you for joining us on the China and the World podcast and here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. I think uh, have a sense that the next year and a half might be quite busy for you. So we're glad to have had this opportunity and we welcome you back at some point. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for joining the China and the World podcast. Be sure to check out more content from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center on our website.